There is a place where fears and fantasies get weighed on substance alone. Legends and lores are examined in fresh light. Conspiracy theory meets conspiracy fact. Abandon your defenses. Embrace the possibilities. Step beyond the threshold into other realms. And then there was one point where I heard uh, a growl. Some UFOs when we were there. I want to know the truth. You're listening to Threshold Radio. I'm Anthony K. With me is Sam Ranto and John Stevenson. On today's show, we have Craig Ranke from the Citizen Investigation Team talking to us about 9-11 Truth. Also, Nigel and Andrew from London. They're going to be calling in to talk to us about the Shroud of Turin. That and much more on today's show. You're listening to Threshold Radio. We're going to be right back with Nigel and Andrew from London right after this quick commercial break. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. Right now we have Nigel and Andrew from London on the phone, and man, we got some good conversations we're about to have about the Shroud of Turin and some uh, UFOs and much more. So uh, go ahead, Sam. How you doing, Andrew? Yeah, I'm fine, thanks. Yeah, and you? Oh, fine. I can't. You know, you have no idea how exciting this is. Uh, first of all, the multiple topics here: the Shroud of Turin is something that is close and dear as far as the understanding of what transpired there. Um, and the other thing is, of course, the whole extraterrestrial, I call it encounters, abductions, whatever. And um, this is also very important. And the two, I can't believe the two of you coming together. This is, how on earth did this ever happen? But how is it the two of you, first of all, got together? Well, it's a long, long story. It goes back many, many years. I, met, I first met Andrew when he was 12 years old, and oh. he came along as a job lot with his sister to, <laughs> to, visit, to, to visit me one, uh, one afternoon. And uh, strangely enough, you know, the, the chemistry was just right. And it's, the cement has lasted all these years, and we've had a wonderful time exploring the world, having thousands and thousands of discussions and arguments and so forth. <laughs> and, and, of course, it, rather than, you know, the usual um, format is that, that, that these things break up with time, you know, yes. ent entropy being what it is, we have a big problem in the world anyway. Bodies were failing, parts yes. falling off and all that. And of Andrew course. and I have still soldiered on and off. We, we've gone into the, the wide blue yonder, 
And I, I must say this, I never really expected, you know, uh, Sam, to come across a subject like UFOs and so on. And, Andrew's, a, we, we were kind of both soaked in science. Andrew's, as you know, a medical doctor. And um, my, my entire demeanor has been focused through um, test tubes and, and, and various other scientific implements and so on. And uh, the point was that looking at such things, you know, from the point of view of that uh, strict scientific method, to talk to you today about things like the Shroud of Turin, which which I hope to convince you uh, through Andrew's expertise, is probably the greatest and most wonderful uh, expression of the size of our being against what we don't know in the universe, shall we say, and yes. also this business about UFOs and uh, the the fact that these things are, are such enigmas and 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 the world is you know divided in in uh, in almost equal measure in believing it and not believing it. I started off, I have to tell you, as a rank skeptic about UFOs and all that business, and I was really on 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 my my heels, so to speak, trying to to get rid of the idea uh, that this these things should be taken seriously. And my 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 boy asked me a question. My son, when he was twelve, asked me a question. Dad, are these things real? And I kind of, you know, wanted to dismiss the whole thing as, as a knee-jerk reaction. But the boy is a, is a pretty um, well-hitched-up fellow up, up top. And I knew he'd get back to me. If I made the mistake, you know, I was going to pay for that. And so I thought I'd better take a rain check on his question and said, leave it with me. I'll have a look and I'll, I'll, I'll give you an answer. And that answer has taken over 40 years to come to some kind of fruition, some kind of completion. And that's really the, the business. And how you tie that? That whole thing, this this really strict kind of uh, physical, mechanical laws business and, and, and so on, uh, with something as enigmatic and as on the face of it spiritual as the Shroud, uh, is a fascinating thing. And I hope to make some cogent and, and fairly well-connected uh, mechanisms here that, that might give people food for thought about the fact that these things, UFOs and all these kinds of, you know, out of, out of our atomic world type thing um, are really connected and it's not that bizarre and it's not that pie-in-the-sky nonsense really, you know. See, that is what science is supposed to be about to me. Uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but science is best when it evaluates and, and, and explores phenomena. Well, I, I think science and the mechanisms of science or the method of science has really a very powerful and premier part in underscoring truth. But I don't think that science can actually ever in its own terms, because it is a purely physical measuring phenomenon in the end, I don't think it can actually get to the whole truth. That's the point. Uh, and, and the thing is, there, you know, when it comes to truth, there is the, there is the absolute truth, which none of us have, have uh, no bearing on whatsoever in this state and may never in any form of our existence if we have other existences. Uh, and, and is probably outside the scope because it encompasses everything that was, will be, and then, of course, the consciousness and plan of that in, in place at and, and every period of time. So it is an impossibility. What with that is that if you say, of course, it's impossible it's for, to know the absolute, for us to know absolute truth, 
and you're making that as a statement of absolute truth. So um, you have to we have to allow for the possibility that perhaps humanity might be capable of achieving it, but maybe not in the state that we're that we're in now. But maybe I, that's something that that I'd like to come back to later, perhaps if I have the chance to talk a bit more about the shroud and yeah. what it means to me. Yeah, because right. you know, one of the fascinating things uh, about the shroud is that in fact it evaluates science from its present controlled mechanism that we have to use all the various senses in, in, in fact to enunciate anything in science it's based on the five senses and they don't go into the sixth senses which is perhaps what we're really talking about what really is there and then the po po point about the shroud is it leaves us with with the evidence based upon science rationality at its core and uh, Dr. Silverman, uh, Andrew will take you through these, uh, this uh, in, in step by step. And I tell you, uh, Sam, uh, I too um, have been in, uh, alongside him while he's been uh, talking about this at, in some of the top um, uh, science symposiums and what they're discovering about the shard. And I tell you, when, when as a father I was looking at my children, maybe say 20 years ago, I was a little bit more skeptical about what it was all about, where were they going, as any father would do. But I tell you what, and what I've discovered about UFOs and the Shroud together, and, and this was by accident, and really it's an implicit thing, I have to tell you that I am full of wonder at what awaits us out of this kind of situation we find ourselves in, in atoms, so to speak, because there are connections that are cogent, that are rational, that are reasonable, uh, where we can actually project and say, look, if you connect all the dots, you come at something absolutely wonderful. Now that right there uh, is, is so important to me because all of this comes down to a, a level of far beyond that of the atom and understanding what we are uh, as far as matter goes, if that is what we 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 um, allow ourselves to believe we are at least scientifically unfortunate. Uh, it's it seems to be unfortunate. So much of science is demanding of the physical world and sensorial uh, evaluations, and uh, and of course that is the only way we could experience except, of course, through the analytical. We use our, our senses to experience all experiences in the, the mind's eye, so to speak. The yes. senses in themselves and of themselves don't actually experience anything, just like you can compare the uh, eye to a camera, but the, the silicon chip inside the, the camera isn't actually experiencing what the camera is viewing. So we're actually not experiencing through the senses, but we're experiencing through the, the nature of mind and, and awareness. And again, this is, yes. I think, something that's, that's, really, that's really crucial. And if you look at quantum theory, which has been around for um, about 80, or 80 years or so now, well, uh, several quantum physicists have stated that you cannot really have a fully consistent idea of quantum theory without basing it on the nature of consciousness as a fundamental role in what you're in what you're looking at. You can't see it as a, if you you can't see it as a purely material thing. Partly because it, in the process of seeing it, in being aware of it, there's something immaterial there, which is your awareness of it. 
Yes. Now, unfortunately, in the world of the so-called skeptic, that doesn't ring true. It has to be tangible in the well, most material sense, unfortunately. Sure, but I'm you saying, see... I'm saying the, the, the pseudo-skeptic that has, has arisen, and, and they're, really, they're really not even scientific. They're just people that want to deny everything and uh, will only allow expeditions and exploration scientifically uh, into only certain elements of what they prove, and that's not right. Well, know? the thing is, that if people aren't going to be scientific about it, then and they're not going to be rational about it, and they don't want to accept evidence without, even though they can't fault the evidence, then, they, I mean, there's some people you just will never be able to convince, and I don't think it's, you know, you're even, it's even sometimes worth, yeah. worth trying in those terms. The problem, right. I think, a problem I think, Sam, with skepticism is that it comes two-faced. There are those who sincerely want to know something and not be fooled. And there are those who don't want to know anything and, in fact, <laughs> will fool other people in the process. And, Correct. And I can understand a sincere individual who really wants to look at something. I had to really throw away all I knew about quantum physics, and I thought I, I, I was the last word on it once upon a time, until I actually went into the subject. Fortunately for me, I didn't go into science in the box, so to speak. I kept out of the box, because once you're in that box, you will uh, go like, you know, Mr. Mole uh, with pebble glasses in a one-track way, and, and, and that means the sensors, and that means the measuring devices, and so on. And this is obviously a physical, materially oriented thing. And the point about, I think, what Andrew's saying is that behind all of that is this amazing power, this wondrous philosophy that has nothing to do with the material or the physical, and it is giving you all that information and the ability to actually know what that information is as far as that knowing means anything, if you see what I'm trying to say. You know? Yes. <laughs> yes, Stevie, um, and, and drawing that, that distinction between cynicism and skepticism is very important. Uh, in my book, I think it's fundamental. The other thing is, there's so many different things to talk it, it, to, to to cover here that it's it's uh, it's almost like looking at a at a uh, a buffet table. You end up grabbing too much, and it looks like a mess by the time you're done putting everything on your plate. Yeah. Um, the the notion of the material world is not as not what we think it is. Mm. It's and, and this is where most people don't want to sit down. Even some people in the scientific realm, this is what really puzzles me, where, where they don't don't want to admit to those people wanting to know the the, uh, uh, the facts about such things as uh, what is matter comprised of. Uh, are are atoms in a state of flux? Is is there more going on here? Are we a, a composite of something far more complex than matter? See, this is this is what you're doing the research to bring that information forward, and I have to applaud you. It's great. 
Yeah, uh, I, I actually discovered the nature of skepticism through my own experience when I, I went into this investigation of what this business of UFOs might be. And of course, but that's that is skepticism. Skepticism. Yeah, absolutely. You I, I was skepticism. I made it a condition that I was not going to be fooled. I mean, you know, the oh, whole idea oh. of of Buck Rogers and the, we were all brought up by that kind of thing. And of course, we have an imagination, and we would look out there and we would love to to kind of you know um, measure our minds against all these adventures and all that business and so on. And it's very easy then to extrapolate on those lines and begin to take that and say, you know, yes, there are UFOs, of course, we know, and we learnt about them in, 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 in magazines and all this kind of business. And then to actually look at this in a really steadfast and well-calculated um, sense of meaning, uh, that turned me upside down. It actually... It, my skepticism was totally shattered the more I went into it. Instead of trying to prove the more I went into it that this was all a myth and it was some kind of mental uh, expression, I began to discover the, 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 that in the Pandora's box there was something, and I really do believe there is something fundamentally incredible here in this UFO phenomenon, and that uh, unless those people in this world that have the power to see this for what it really is, if they don't allow us all to do that, then I think that's when we as mankind have a very, very uh, dangerous uh, quest in front of us and a future in front of us. And I think we really need to take this in hand, have a look at this, look at all the evidence, not the stuff that's been hidden. And I have no doubt in 40 years of research that there's absolutely vast amounts of evidence from all the nations in the world that have been hidden from the view of uh, humanity and so forth because it speaks directly to that um, intrinsic value of humanity and I think there is a, a, a part of the human nature that really doesn't want to look that deep into human value and I think that's the challenge to make ourselves look that deep and see what is revealed and if you do that if you actually go in there and take a look and you have to be brave and you have to cast away uh, a lot of the things you believed in before and if you can can do that I think Every human being will discover a completely different sense. As you said, something way beyond what we assume our humanity and our human experience to be. Yes. The, um, the whole notion that it's, it's more frightening than the human can, and human beings can, uh, can tolerate is something that I laugh at. Because um, each and every day we, 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 we face our mortality when we're being told about oh you know here in, in the states it could be a orange day for terrorism or there's enough things going to kill us the bottom line we're going to leave here uh in and in, in um maybe one piece or multiple pieces either way we're leaving and it isn't going to be alive we're going to die and, and i believe the greatest adventure is still to come and that is past life in the state beyond atoms and that i think that this particular situation we're in may well be some kind of enforced re dress rehearsal we brought each of us individually on ourselves and in the admission out 
of this frame of reference of existence, we come to the real and the most wondrous uh, truth of all of these things. And 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 you still you you can get a hint. You know, the the, the title of my book. I objected to it when the um, uh, publishers uh, suggested they were going to call it this was coupling <laughs> UFOs with soul. Now, immediately, isn't that completely bizarre? I thought, my goodness me, even though it dealt with the phenomenon in that kind of context, because I had discovered that kind of context, I thought that the, confronting the public with that salutary uh, expression was just too powerful and too bizarre. But, you know, I'm glad in the end that was it is done because that connection has to be made. And made, and made strictly, strictly, too, you know? Well, to tell you the truth, I think, from my own experience, on uh, in 2004, on two cases that I was working on, dealing with uh, abduction, implants, ongoing scenarios, that two photographs that I've seen and also some videotape represented some, something in there that I couldn't understand it may very well be something to do with what we refer to as soul. Oh. And it made and each instant had to do with one of these beings taking a a let's say what I believe may I I think may be something like a confinement of of soul uh, or some aspect of that away from the being temporarily and returning it. Um, and, and, you know, you, it's, it's very important, I think, to try to get as accurate a definition of what we might all sense as, as soul, the business of soul, so to speak. And the important thing is to try to get to people how this description, right, might in fact connect up reasonably, rationally, without too much obscurity and complexity, into a way of seeing what we're talking about, what is in fact a soul. And in, in, in my terms, looking at all the information that I was extrapolating over the years, I thought the best thing I could come up with, at least, was it is a kind of quantum information field. And I often like to give the example when I, I speak on the radio and, and, and broadcast and so on, that this is something we shouldn't uh, in any way uh, fear in, in, in the sense that it is some wondrous thing out there and it's, 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 it's a giant expression we will never understand it's outside the grasp of man to me the illustration that I make is a man has a cell phone and on that cell phone he will create a message he will type out a message to a friend of his that might be miles away now, that message on that cell phone is an information field. It is put down in the cell phone. He can read it. And at the press of a button, that field is transmitted over space-time, a distance away, maybe miles, whatever. So there you are. You are moving something that you can't see, feel, or touch, right? You are f moving a juxtaposition of force, if you like, in the form of letters and assemblies through a mechanism that carries it, which you can't see, and that's projected from one point to another. Now, to me, I think that our bodies, 
they're a coil. They're a biomagnetic coil. We've got iron moving in a circuit around our body, pumped by our heart in the form of hemoglobin. Now, in some kind of way, we have a mechanism in there, which I call a quantum field. And every bit of information that our consciousness gleans through every second of our existence in some way is like writing the message of our story, our individual story, on this platform. So we then become individual quantumized fields of information. And then this thing at the point of death, Andrew will tell you that he's actually seen a manifestation of these, you know, uh, actually leaving the body. In, in one instance, he was, he was seeing this thing emerge from someone who died as a mist. I remember him telling me this, and I was thinking, what on earth is he talking about? But, you know, I think that at that point, when that our blood, uh, blood circulation stops, this thing actually is released, and it it's released as this quantum field of information and moves on. Now, where it moves on is another whole story, and we'll have to look at this look in at the, the, uh, a little bit more than that, 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 that actual thing. thing. This, to me, is a, the simplest way of saying that we move on. Our individual quantum fields actually move on outside our physicality, so to speak, just like the message is transported at the press of a button from one person to another a distance away. And in that moving, of course, it's neither in the person who made the message up or in the person who actually receives that and reads it. And so we then, in death, are, if you like, in a situation. And then we can come to, you know, discuss and argue what that situation might be, where that might be, how that might be um, looked at and so on. But to me, that's what a soul is. Now, the big deal is, you know, Sam, can that information field be hacked? Can that be put upon, that individual quantum field we call us? Can that be hacked by a technology? And remember, you know, the message can be hacked. We're having right. problems about that in the UK yes. at the moment. Mm -hmm. Of course. <laughs> if you see what yes. I mean. Can yes. additional information be put there, which then, you know, alters our individuality because that information might be put by an outsider and that outsider's influence might in fact then take over the whole quantum message of an individual and in that way perhaps our souls or that that thing you you mentioned that went back again that thing then returned within another aspect, another body, another life form, a, a lifetime maybe and then you have got your own individualization, if you like, taken over by something else, then is that you? Is that down to all the things you have done? Or can this other entity control through putting information that can actually dominate your own? Could that other entity actually control you? And that, to me, is the best way that I can explain how someone or something can steal a soul. Otherwise, it would be the most difficult thing to explain. Well, I think you're on to something because this, in a, a moment's glance at a few images and some video footage, this is what I was concerned about. Um, obviously, something can tamper, can alter many different aspects of what is contained in that field, whatever that was, yes. if that yes. is what I'm actually 
seeing, yeah. and I believe, I shouldn't say believe, I, I, I have, I've gone beyond that. I have a degree of certainty that this is what is taking place. Yes. I'm and that, that's what you explained, by the way, using the example of the cell phone. Yes. Is, is absolutely um, very um, illustrative to get that across to people. Yes. Uh, and I think, you know, funny thing you mentioned that the iron hemoglobin, that's something that goes through my mind constantly. Here we have iron being pumped through our body. And it's amazing. You hit on so many things that I myself have been thinking about for years and has to do with the whole realm of what we're entrenched in, being our uh, reality and our research into these other realms uh, that could open up more meaning to what I think is, in fact, the reasoning why this is all at bay and kept at arm's length, because they it's the concern about finding out who we are, what we are, and why we are. Yeah. It's the real concern, Yes, and, and that is uh, something that I think y you're on the road to. Well, you know, uh, the, the, the important thing, I think, is that, as you said, there are so many individuals in our world who feel this intuitively kind of thing, you know? And, and these people are usually put about and, and put down by the individuals who have the so-called conventional take on these things. When in fact, it's the quiet thinker. The per most human beings have these, these, I believe, illustrative intuitions that actually uh, allude to the truth of these things. And then you get the, the heavy brigade, so to speak, for whatever reason, and sometimes the reasons are very, very, um, um, shall we say, um, have no sense of integrity in them whatsoever. I'm, I'm, I have to say I'm not a fan of organized religion at all, even though I, they, they threw some water on me in, when I was a little infant and called me a Roman Catholic. I have to say <laughs> that I, I wasn't prepossessed by the whole business and so forth. I really wanted to know what was going on, and I didn't want a particular hive or construction uh, of truth brought to me. And in fact, really, I can see the beauty of all religious thought in terms of its original ethic. But the moment human beings get their fingers and thumbs on a thing like that, of course, truth is distorted. Intuition goes out of the window. Individual uh, sense of rightness is over, and then we have nothing uh, to show for it at the end because the gangs, the gangsters, and, and, and the kind of, you know, selfish, self-centered thinkers have taken the whole thing over. And that, sadly, is, 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 is the premise I would love to, to leave with my children. For heaven's sake, think for yourselves because that individual quantum field is so precious, it is intrinsically eternal. And if something else, like a, 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 a technical um, a roboidal, shall we say, some kind of superintelligent auspice comes and superimposes on that and takes away your own signature of individuality, then we are in a big deal here because if you, if, if you did it naturally, you'll come back in another lifetime as you. But what if something else interposes in the meantime? You are you no more. And that to me is the most frightening thing of all. And I think this is one of the elements that are, are giving to us as a birthright to explore and develop. And that brings more value to the total 
than than being a, a part of uh, just one more, uh, you know, repl replication, um, you know, one more uh, blind thought, uh, a mind that's just getting information dumped into and not questioning. I look at a forest. The forest survives by its complex nature. You, of course you will have your, your oaks and similar species, but if you had the same, uh, the same um, uh, species altogether, much like a farm, then you inherit different types of blights and issues, and, and we have this in, all, in, in agriculture. So uh, I think, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and, and so there is value to the the individual thinker, yeah. and also to to um, to realize the value of our own ex our own experience in this world and our own perspective. Yeah. That adds, I think, to a greater um, uh, a greater whatever that experience is that I have no idea about. Yeah. I just know I'm entrenched in it. Uh, gladly, and it's, you, you it's bet. You're absolutely, and uh, you're absolutely right. Your take on that, and and and, and the, the the thing that actually strikes me about. Uh, the way the world presents itself these days, that little box in the corner that throws everything at everyone. And if individuals could simply sit down in their dominions, their little domains, call it their little homes or whatever, and actually look at the questions that really ought to occupy our minds. Who are we? What are we? Where are we going? How do we come to be what we are? It's all so lost and obscure in this tirade of stuff that comes at us in the day zone trouble, so to speak, coming off the TTVs and the radios or whatever. And no more is there, it seems, room for ourselves and maybe the assurance of our own validity eternally. And as the Christian teacher, Jesus Christ, for instance, only promised one thing. It's really the things you notice in the Bible that most people don't notice usually tend to be the most relevant of all. The only thing, you know, he ever promised was, if you believe in me, I will give you eternal life. Now, the implication there, if you're going to get religious about this, was something was going to threaten that propensity to an eternal statement of existence. And that's what he was addressing himself to. I think he came to this world. And in the interview, I would, I'm hoping to give you some kind of insight into how this might have translated itself, Jesus himself and the great teachers, not just him, you know, the Buddhist teacher, Gautama Buddha, they call um, uh, the, 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 uh, the Buddhist teacher. Um, uh, and of course, I tell you what, outside those terrorists and those people that do terrible things and so on, uh, uh, even the prophet of Islam, if you actually read the Quran, there are some really beautiful thoughts there, unselfish, beautiful thoughts. Um, and so, you know, the great teachers had this, this insight. Then I think in, like most instances, small gangs of lost individuals take over, and for all of us, the game seems to be spoiled. And that really is the way I look at this in my little um, contribution to the world, is to kind of say, look, kids, my kids, this is what your dad thinks. Now, you either take that, or you take the money. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and in agreement, you know, there is something to expound upon uh, for them and for all of us. You know, the thing is, to me, I have uh, 
my um, background is probably relatively similar, except that I was in a seminary, a uh, Roman Catholic seminary. Um, the thing here is I found, unfortunately, uh, I, I had deep respect uh, uh, for uh, tradition within reason, but to understand it as being tradition and, and as uh, one mechanism to galvanize people of similarity and to also encourage other people, and uh, not necessary to assimilate, but to encourage people to be part of a family. I think it gets too much interpretation. Now, Andrew did a lot in this as well, right? He was uh, instrumental in, 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 in uh, um, um, taking part in a, um, a very distinguished assembly of, of, of minds who recently met, relatively recently met, May, uh, last year, uh, or this year rather, wasn't it, Andrew? Yes. Uh, we, uh, there were two, one last year and yeah, one this year. And uh, he, there in Frascati in Italy, all the premier minds in science that are looking at the Shard of Turin for what it might be. And then later on, uh, he was lecturing in, a, in another symposium in Poland, um, and he's come up with some absolutely riveting uh, takes on this, and uh, really I, I ought to let him have a go. I've been rolling on so long, I, I'm, I'm, I really am sorry, but once you start, you know, it's very difficult to end on these threads sometimes. Well, there's so much to talk about, so I says we're going to have to have multiple, multiple conversations. Uh, again, I'd like to extend to the both of you, this being a forum for you, to... Um, of course, bring new information forward. Also, to engage people that may have uh, um, have countering theories or interesting theories that may also uh, encourage uh, deeper insight into your to your work and encourage others to do similar and uh, whatever needs to be done. Um, again, we extend this as a forum to you. Thanks. And um, I'd like to, Andrew. My gosh. You've actually been there, actually looked at the Shroud of, the, the Shroud of Turin, yes. and worked on the scientific aspects of it, and walked away with something more than some sort of uh, artistic representation to defraud people, as some in, in the scientific community have come to withhold, or come to hold as their belief, and um, they don't want to walk away with anything more. Uh, other than that, which would be stupid in my mind, but anything other than scientific. Now, closer to the truth on the matter, what is it so far that we know about the shroud? Okay. Well, I mean, the this, the shroud is a 14-foot-long piece of cloth, for those who, who don't know much about it. It's kept in, in Turin in Italy. And on this, this linen cloth, there are several several markings. There's markings from where it's been involved in a fire. There's water stains on there. There's marks on there that appear to be like blood stains and have been studied forensically and been shown to be human blood stains. And then there's this very faint image of a man on there. Now, for for many centuries, it was believed to be just a very faint image that looked a bit like a man, until the discovery of photography. Uh, in the late 19th century, a uh, photographer by the name of Secunda Pia uh, was allowed to, to take photographs using 19th century technology, of course, of the, of the Turin Shroud. And in those days, you had very large photographic plates and so on, and long exposure times and all that. So um, what he did was he took, he took this photo 
And while he was developing the, the photographic negative of the shroud, the story goes that he nearly dropped his photographic plate in shock when he saw that when you take a negative, a photographic negative of the image of the shroud, what you're left with is a positive. That instead of just seeing this faint sepia brown marks on the, on the cloth that, that, don't really, that looks vaguely in the outline of a human being, when you take a photographic negative, you see, you see so many details and you see that it actually, it actually is a representation of the whole body of a, of a human being, front and back, with, with so many details on there that the forensic pathologists have, have since studied in great detail to find out a lot about him. Now, I just want to get one thing out of the way to, to start with because a lot of listeners will probably be familiar with the carbon dating report that was, that was published uh, from the joint collaborative carbon dating study that was done on the, on the shroud. Now, the interesting thing about this, about the carbon dating, is that a clear protocol was decided beforehand of what, how this should be done, involving many different laboratories, seven of them, parts of the cloth from several different parts, and uh, various things that were supposed to have been done when the, the cloth was to be dated. And this was actually, in the end, it was all, it was all dropped. And uh, they, just for convenience or for whatever reason, they only used one sample from a corner of the cloth that had been the most contaminated throughout history because it was the corners where it had been held all the time. Now, um, when... This was published. I noticed that there was a because I was a, a student at the time back in 1989, and I noticed in that edition of Nature, the the journal Nature, where it was published, in the in the statistics box in the paper itself, you could see evidence that the chance of the variation between the different laboratories, the three different laboratories that dated the cloth, the chance of that happening on and it being consistent with it being the same piece of cloth of the same age, were you could refute that in scientific terms, we say you could refute that hypothesis at the 95% limit, which meant it was very unlikely that actually the what they dated was representative of the cloth. Then later in uh, in the uh, soon after the 21st century began uh, some researchers in the states a couple called Benford and Marino noticed that there was there was an anomaly about the the region of the shroud that was actually dated that if you look carefully it looks as though it's actually two different two different cloths put together and when they said this, there was one of the one of the researchers who'd been in the original STIRP team, Shroud of Turin Research Project, which is a, a group of scientists, mainly from the States, who went over to Turin, and most of them skeptics, not many of them Christian, for example. There were a few Jews like me there, there were a few agnostics, there were I, I wasn't there by the way. I'm saying that they were like me in in, in the sense of their background. Um so um, there were uh, there was a whole whole mixture of of different of different people there, and and many of them went there to um, to. Some of them said, "Well, I'm just going to go there, have a look at it in five minutes, find the brush strokes, and then we'll know how it was done." And they were amazed that they could not explain how this image could possibly have got there. But so um, Ray, Raymond Rogers, who was a chemist at Los Alamos uh, Laboratories in uh, New Mexico, he 
um, had thought the shroud must be authentic because no one could say how it was was could possibly have been painted or anything. The, if you look at the image, there's no brush strokes. There's no um, if you analyse the image, there's nothing that's been added to it. It's just a, a, a the change in the structure of the cellulose that makes the linen is similar to the change in structure of paper when it turns yellow from sunlight. We'll come to that later, hopefully. But anyway. But anyway. So, so um, um, what Raymond what Rogers, Rogers said when he heard that Benford and Marino were questioning the carbon dating, he was angry. Be being a, 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 you know, a, a good scientist, he wanted to believe the evidence and whatever it found. And he said, carbon dating has said it was 14th century. That's what it is. I'm going to prove these people wrong, these fringe people, as he said. Um, and so, um, he, he, did the, he did the experiments to try and prove them wrong and he he went on the on the record on videotape before he died to to state that he'd intended to prove them wrong and he'd found that he'd actually what he had done was to was to prove them right that, that he found evidence that this part of the cloth was sub, had been subject to repair it had been uh, there'd been a reweave involving new material and that's why the carbon dating uh, result was what it was, that uh, it, was, it was dated wrongly. Interestingly, none of the scientists, as I say, all of them coming from different walks of life and many of them skeptics, none of the, the, those, that group of scientists who went to study the, the shroud, none of them came back thinking it was a fake. None of them could account for how anyone could have made it by human hand, by painting, by any, any method, and all the ways that people have tried to duplicate it, you know, right up to the modern day, no one has actually been able to duplicate the key features, which are one I, I mentioned just before, the photographic negative, another fundamental one that was uh, discovered by a, a physicist, um, from, a physicist from Colorado called Dr. John Jackson, um, was that when you use certain technology that was actually designed for NASA for lunar reconnaissance and so on, which was designed to uh, discover the topography and so on from light and shade, and you, if you put an ordinary photograph in this in this machine, this image intensifier, you find a random set of of peaks and troughs. Okay, if you put a human face photograph in there, it doesn't look anything like a face. Put the shroud in there, and, and you you, you get, a, get a, what, what, another, another eureka moment, if you like, just like Secundo Pier had. In fact, that's how John Jackson describes it. That that he he in a sense understood how Secundo Pier might have felt. That when you put the shroud in this image, you can see that's perfect three-dimensional information is encoded into the Turin shroud image. Now. What this implies, putting it all together, that the, the change in the structure of the, the, the surface fibers, less than a human hair's thickness, by the way, that's how thin the image is. And I'll come to the, back to this later, but there's no image visible underneath the bloodstains, which implies that the bloodstains, which forensically we know happened after the man had died, appeared on the cloth before his image did. Now we know with, from the photographic negative properties and the three-dimensional information that's encoded in the image, putting it all together, what it implies to many is that the only way that we can account for how the image could have got onto the cloth is there was a short, intense burst of radiant energy that actually came from the dead body of the man who was wrapped in the shroud. Now, people might say, well, who was this? Who was this man? You know, why do people assume that they know who it, who it was? 
Well, we know forensically, we know that this was someone who had been crucified. We know from because the, the, the nails in the, in the wrists and the feet. And we also know from, from pollen studies and other research and looking at the, at the, the textiles and the, of the cloth and so on, that this tends to, the evidence suggests that this would have been from the pollen, would have been in around the Jerusalem area in March or April. Okay, and it's it's consistent with a with a first century cloth that we've the, that we've found, and also the fact that that this appears to be a, the body of a man who had been crucified, which was the what the Romans used to do. But we know that the Romans used to when they used to crucify people for most of the time when they did it, they would just leave them out for the for the birds to peck at and so on to be an example. But there was one particular period of time between AD or Common Era 6 and 66 when because of the there was some um, Jewish ruler who was allowed some kind of token power, if you like, in Judea, Judea and he had um, come to an agreement with the Romans that at least these Jews who the Romans were, were slaughtering would at least have traditional Jewish burials, which meant they had to be buried quickly. And, you know, you've already killed them. What more do you want from them? So the, the, the Romans actually, between that time, 6 and 66, allowed this to happen. Now, uniquely on the shroud image, as well as the fact that he had been crucified, we can see forensically that he had actually had a cap of thorns placed on his head, and he had been pierced in the in the side. Now, these are these are, are not things that were were routine or or part of the what the Romans used to do routinely for for crucifixions. And it, there are, of course, as you as as you know, reports from around the time of Jesus, or Yeshua as he was known probably in those days, that these are things that happened uniquely to him and were part of how the Romans taunted him, the, the guards, the, the Roman soldiers taunted him for what people were, were saying about him. So um, there really is, there really is, when you stop and you think and you lay out all of the the facts as far as this is there, the thorns, the, the wound in the side, nails in the wrist, and, and the um, and the feet. Yes, et and cetera, the interesting the interesting thing about them being in the wrists is that if you look at all art right up and into the twentieth century that depicted the crucifixion, they always showed the the nails through the hands, and it's only very recently that we found through um, forensic pathology that actually. That because you know people haven't seen crucifixions for for, for so long, thankfully, um, that if you had nails through the hands, that wouldn't support the weight of the body. Also, when you put nails through the wrists, that is going to have an effect on something called the median nerve, which anatomically goes through that part of the wrist where the nail was. Stimulating that nerve will make the thumb curl back onto the hand, and that's in fact what you see on the shroud. I mean, I, I could talk for hours just about the the forensic evidence and the authenticity of, of that. You can even see what position he was in, two different positions while he was being crucified and, and so on. And it, I could just go on for hours. But, but the point is that um, the evidence does exist that suggests that this, that, that man who is, whose image is on the cloth was the same person that we know historically as, as Jesus of Nazareth. And that something that happened after that man died that caused something akin to a short, intense burst of radiant energy that came from his his dead body. 
And so it's and fascinating to try and understand, understand that, that from the point of view of both physics and biology. And that's that's what my talks um, have have been about when I've been talking in in these in these symposia. And I've I've written about it on my my website as well yes. on my papers. Well, here you have scientific evidence indicating that this is not a fraud, that this is something far more intricate than pretty much anything else that we have ever seen. Do we have any other uh, uh, similar types of representation well, that this, this type of, uh, uh, of phenomena? Not the phenomenon of the shroud image, but interestingly, the, the bloodstains that are on the, the shroud match exactly to something that is kept in, in Spain called the, the Sudarium of Oviedo, which was separate from the shroud for, um, for, for many centuries, possibly a couple of millennia, um, and which has exactly the same shape. And this was thought to have been um, the cloth that was put over his, his face to, to, to soak up the blood. Now, you, they have, you have two independent objects, apparently, from the same individual, and they seem to go hand-in-hand hand without... Yes, this seems to be an issue with the cynics, because I can't say skeptics, but the cynics will say that they're, you know, the chain of command here, uh, there is no, no recorded chain of command, and that by uh, that, that's absolutely incorrect, too. Uh, there is a very well recorded uh, chain of command, at least for some span of time. Well, this is yes. not correct. If, if you if you read, um, for example, in Wilson's books, he he has sort of shown a, a line of connection through the what's called the the Mandilion of of Edessa, um, which was which was there in um, in Turkey um, from you know very early on in the in the first millennium. Yeah, the most intriguing thing, if I may just come in here, um, um, Sam, uh, about the whole question of the Shroud is not just what it might mean when this dead body um, um, produced a light that could actually mark a cloth in the way it did. Uh, the, 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 the most important thing to me about this whole business is why on earth, if all of this implication known by so many scientific minds of eminence. Why on earth are these people standing back and not allowing, finally, a proper dating of this thing to be done? There seems to be some kind of perverse, as you, as you call them, cynical um, bar to... Prove, proving to the rest of mankind that here we have something that might mark all of us as something special because the words of the man, if indeed it is proved in the end that this is a shroud of Jeshua ben Joseph, uh, Jesus Christ, as is more commonly known, if this individual could do this and he claimed on his own words, the records we have of them anyway, he claimed that we are all gods don't ye know ye are gods there's a there's a, a reference there in the, in, 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 in the testament to the to, to his testament to this and the fact that he claimed that we too would do the things he did that they were nothing to him he understood all of this far greater than maybe <laughs> many many scientists do in in terms of you know the science of, of the modern day science and all that all the artifacts that come from that if that is so, why don't we go for this? 
go for this so that it marks all of us and gives us something so special to look at when we look at ourselves in the mirror. That in fact, if one individual came and through his example achieved a thing like this, and then if you take that on past his death, the transfiguration, the assumption, whatever they call it, and these things, that in fact there is something within all of us that has a propensity if we probably use, as Andrew was discussing earlier, this thing we call mind, that we may also, thinking in the kind of way we, that, that he mm. gave us an example of, uh, we might in fact have some kind of future in the same scope. And here we have science coming on our side, uh, Sam. That's the amazing thing, you know? No. Well, I think you hit something here. Mm. This is the concern a heightened state of being for for the common man uh, today in the United States it, it, it is no I think it's around the world uh, that it, it is it is no it, it's no secret that the dumbing down of society is underway to take humanity to a higher um, a higher level uh, as obviously this being had achieved would be a threat to the status quo. And I think that the greatest threat of what we perceive as a national or an international security. Yes, it's easy to see what you're saying when you look at the world and what's happening in the world today. Uh, so much grander uh, is our perspective when one looks with the insight that these uh, bits of evidence produce and when we look at our TV sets each night and uh, look at the mundanity that they show humanity to be and the, the contrast is absolutely stupendous is it not and really I'm not in this to kind of preach new meanings or whatever it is I just simply want my children and all the world's children, perhaps, to see that really the parents, you know, aren't doing such a great job. They may be being mis misled in a terrifying way and that they should, in fact, take a rain check on them and hold to a great and glorious truth that has kept, has been kept uh, from them, in fact, and such that many children and many young youngsters these days seem to be wandering around with no hope at all when in fact locked in any single human being is the potential i believe as jesus christ mm -hmm. and the great teachers in the past there were there were other teachers who proclaimed this in in the eastern uh, ethos and so on of religion and so forth that there is a trans more mogrification mechanism that can work from within us if only and I, this is the great crucial thing, I think, you know, um, uh, Sam, if we only use our mindedness, in quotes, so to speak, to somehow extrapolate behavior that indeed, again, extrapolates a better mindedness into a situation where the whole thing becomes a grand snowball of delivery away from the propensities of the second law of thermodynamics, which rots everything and takes us on beyond atoms into something wondrous. You know, the, the fascinating thing is that it may well be, I would argue, that Jesus was actually referring to the second law of thermodynamics when he spoke about this world, this universe, as being one where there are moths that eat, ru rust that corrupts, and thieves that break in and steal. 
he was talking about degeneration, decay. Also, he was attesting all the time to the power of mind when he said, you know, if you, if you take faith the size of a mustard seed, you can tell that mountain move and it will move. Now, he was actually predicting there, if you like, E equals mc squared. You release the mass energy of a mustard seed, and indeed you can make some movement in a in a mountain. And he was he said, and he followed that with, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. So he was proclaiming, and quite rightly based on reason, and which we've we uh, many people are now coming to see when they look at the implications of quantum theory that mind is absolutely fundamental to existence. Rather than our minds being the product of a few chemicals stuck together in a, in a gooey soup called the, the brain, it's, it's quite the opposite. The very existence of physicality itself is fundamentally dependent upon the existence of the conscious observer. Yes, and where that consciousness comes from, how that awareness and how that quantum we call will comes from where all of that comes from is the great great enigma where does mindedness happen from is it just the result of the juxtaposition of standing waves in an atomic hive or does it actually come in a concatenate connection that goes back to an or a singularity an origin mm. point whether you call that uh, singularity, God or Godness, it's up to you. If you want to be anthropomorphic, you can look at him as a white man with a flowing beard on the Sistine Chapel, or you can see this as something wondrous in terms of the best and the greatest and the grandest scope for all humanity to be, or indeed any life form in our universe to be. It's so arrogant to think that we're the only life form here. And I do believe the place is teeming up there. It's teeming with it. Except that how do we get to understand these little you know, lights in the sky that move at 30,000 miles an hour and all the rest of it? So many of them hidden by governments. And I think you put your, your, your finger on it there, Sam, when you said that there seems to be some kind of dastardly conspiracy. I don't believe in conspiracy theories. I'm allergic to them. But I have to say that it's looking more and more likely that somehow there is a cartel somewhere so powerful that they don't want the curtains drawn on the size of humanity, as, as you rightly said, because it would be too much for the short-term noughts in the bank balance. <laughs> yes. The cause and effect of, of altering uh, the status quo is, I think, the greatest breach of national security. So uh, you have to hold it at every level. You have to control the manner in which, in fact, I really enjoyed a, um, uh, an insightful program that uh, was on FEMA and controlling, you know, all these catastrophic events, mainly they're talking about the next terrorist attack and how things will have to be done and how the community has to be involved, etc., etc. And one term uh, that was used that was, was really impressive, stating that, well, we have already been, you know, basically instructing and controlling, the term controlling and, and various uh, um, alterations of that term were used quite a bit. In other words, in, in, as far as programming people, instructing, but more so in a, in a, uh, in a more demonstrative sense. And, and this is something that uh, 
we are definitely under a, under a control. Uh, uh, television isn't called programming just for the heck of it. Um, there's far more involved into getting people to sit in front of a screen than just entertainment. It's uh, social design, and uh, there's far more there that meets the eye. But yeah. I mean, you know, I think these things can happen incidentally, and the incidental um, result of all of that can then be controlled by opportunists, maybe to their convenience. I don't think oh, yes. there's a big plan that actually is planned and goes on. I think once human beings, in their own sense of protecting their physicality, let loose in the world, so to speak, what they they feel, see, feel, touch, and smell, and whatever, that incidentally it's easy to build up the the, the, the picture of the physical being the dominant thing when in fact and and then look back in into the, the, the deep the depth of our minds and so on and then think yes there must be something beyond the atom i believe if there's a yin there has to be a yang if there's a plus oh, there's oh, a minus if there's yeah, a universe there's something has to be there absolutely has to be but much then you say as your illustration of religion yes. you know religion did not start out this these spiritual truths that uh that they are, you know, truths. They didn't start out trying to mislead. They tried to enlighten. Indeed. To, and and this is an entire. When you're out there trying to empower a people, yeah. And and possibly at 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 times of of great revelations because they've gone through quite a bit in the past. We know are uh, just just looking back and on and we hear more about the trauma that this earth has had many times over the fact that. Uh, civilizations have lived here uh, far longer than we could have managed, we could have ever imagined. The end result is, you know, there is these periods in time that we need to be lift, lift up, and and moved forward. But unfortunately, that that momentum, uh, be it spiritual or enlightenment, gets uh, hijacked for some political or uh, reasons that are truly well beyond the scope of the people who uh, who had started it could have ever imagined and it becomes something else becomes an institution a dogma and and it instead of uh, instructing people it programs them and actually uh, destroys or diminishes uh, what should be encouraged. Yes, it's the uh, the urge to control, I suppose, and in a sense it betrays a deep sense of insecurity. But the, the, the result of all of that is that we lose ourselves, our individualities, and no one is far-sighted enough when they're doing the old praise the Lord and pass me the money business. They're not insightful enough to see that the end of that particular type of rainbow is a very, very dark cloud indeed. Um, now, as far as the extraterrestrial hypotheses here, and then again, I'd like to re go back to yeah. Rabbi uh, Jesus, and, you know, he had mentioned that, or so it's said and written, that um, I am not of this world. Now, that could be taken literally, it could be taken many different ways. Now... If you are not of this world, you are extraterrestrial. 
Well, it, it could be said to be... I have a, a, a take on that, which I'm actually um, uh, writing in book three of the series of three books that I've written trying to explain the whole business, if you like. But, you know, when you say extraterrestrial, you've got the out-there space planet-type extraterrestrialness. But not actually. Not in my, in my dictionary. Yeah, yeah. When I say extraterrestrial, I mean quite simply... Uh, Otherworldly, in other words, yes. interdimensional, uh, uh, a being that has enlightened part of the, is being to the fact that it is not part of this world, okay, it is not uh, addressed to necessarily be uh, entrenched in everything material. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's, there's, there's far more to that term yes. that can be used. I, I think... I think an interesting thing is that he said, uh, perhaps this is what you're referring to, he, he said, if my kingdom were of this world, to imply that perhaps it wasn't. So what's his kingdom? If Perhaps it's the, the kingdom of heaven he's referring to, which is what he said is within all yes. of us. And if, when he said, is it not written you, are gods, to the people who are other human beings who are around him. So he's implying, perhaps, that... All of us are not fundamentally of this physical universe. Yes. That this physical universe is what we have made happen yes. in becoming separate. Yeah, and one of the reasons I try to demarcate between the out there space business and spacemen and anything that might be shown evocatively as a spiritual dimension or whatever you might like to call it is this business of equals MC squared and the fact that, you know, it's really an amazing thing to be able to travel the vast distances that these things have to come here and at the same time have the idea even if you're going at the speed of light you're going at the speed of light mass becomes infinite and that is just not conducive to reason in terms of these things coming from an out there planet that might be you know further than the nearest star or whatever it is or near the nearest star is four and a half light years uh, away and if, if you like maybe there's a possibility that, that you can actually do that kind of thing and there is a wonderful um, you know, civilization there but you know the second law of thermodynamics actually breaks everything down it applies there as well as here it's a universe wide thing I prefer though to look at this new thing that they, they seem to be able um, to see at the moment science, cosmologists and that is that the dy dynamics of the explosion that caused the big bang in fact settle into three distinct types of space-time in each other, like this Russian doll business, if you know, and that within each of those things there are margins that allow you to cross from one to the other. So the one that happened and came out rather like, you know, if you drop uh, a drop of water in the middle of a pond, you get three, um, re three uh, circles going out. The first circle of the Big Bang, if you like, formed a heavier, denser space-time. The second one might be seen as our own. And the third one, the one the most recent away from the Big Bang, so to speak, as the sequence went out, and that's a lighter space-time. And that in this space-time, and matter and stuff like that is far less dense and, and so out of that might come some kind of more ephemeral type of being, a being closer to that first singularity that caused it. Now, that's a very attractive idea for me. I can see how that can happen. And that we and cross, that we cross, we, and we cross and from one space-time to the other within the frame of reference of our thinking, so to speak. And that these 
these heavier, maybe spaceships or whatever it is, might come from the first line of it. Uh, we have our own universe, and um, we move in and out. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's something that needs to be actually explained uh, in a much longer uh, sense. But uh, briefly, I would like to think that these wonderful characters that can transfigure and transmorph and so on uh, is, is, uh, is really a kind of association within ourselves and that this space-time is right within us the kingdom of heaven is within you he said if you see what i'm trying to say so it, it it's uh, we have to have to make it absolutely clear i am not saying that jesus was an et he certainly wasn't he was from within another frame of light attention where mind can express itself and see in much grander dispositions and achieve much grander changes of the kind of physicality that exists there. In other words, we might, if we are right, righteous as he called it, might go in to a kind of sense of a transfigured body like he showed that came out and resurrected, uh, as Andrew was talking about, in, 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 in that tomb in Jerusalem, and that maybe that this is what he's after. If we think thoughts that bind, that bring things together and contradict the second law, we break things apart and so on, then we might actually, using mind, head the other way. Head to a, a wondrous uh, situation that is not of such force as we are in, in our present, in our type of universe, if you see what I'm trying to say. So, you know, oh, there yeah. are so many ways of looking at this, Sam, and we have to try and look at this and examine it and see where reason actually leads us. Well, the multiple states of various matter, a lighter matter, uh, more empirical, as you were saying, if, uh, the, you have beings that are known as light beings that are seen by people, craft that, 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 that don't take, uh, that don't manifest themselves much like matter normally would, or, or like you say, the morphing, etc. Yes. This is something that uh, I, I also entertain. I I definitely do. Yeah. As far as on a similar, let's say, uh, state of matter as we are here on Earth, um, an Einstein-Rosen bridge can, ob can obviously help you transcend time-space. So um, I think if something has evolved far longer and they didn't, let's say, a society that didn't engage in, in hostile warfare, and didn't uh, exhaust their resources uh, mainly for that as a matter of protection and and crushing the other being, but working together, you know, uh, in a hive type almost like mentality, which is expressed by so many witnesses uh, that these creatures seem to function in a hive type mentality. Well, maybe that that can be accomplished. I don't know. Uh, again, this is theory. This is you know, but we're thinking. And that's the most important thing. Yes, and we're, we're trying to try and find answers that might give us reasonable hope, not hope gleaned of, as I say, praise the Lord and pass me the money, you know, kind yes. of thing, and contrived hope, a hope that says, you come through me or you go nowhere. I believe we are the final authority. Each individual is the final authority for themselves because there's nobody there ordering you here, there, or everywhere when you die, you go through that door yourself individually. And so I think that you take on yourself that fantastic 
latitude, if you like, of the eternal or not. But the way you, you, you might think, the way you, you behave. Behavior is just a way of making yourself think in, in a better way. It's just, it's just a habit. If you behave in a habit that, that adds rather than subtracts and that loves rather than hates, then you will naturally become that if you did, did that enough. So action and thought thought go hand in hand. And I, incidentally, I just didn't want to imply, you know, that that Jesus um, may well have been, I believe that Jesus may well have been the antithesis to these grey alien visitors, for instance, and their high levels of technology. Maybe that Ex externalized ring, the first one that, 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 that is a heavier space, is in fact a, a, a kind of space-time of geometry, of, of technology, and that these things are the natural, if you like, result of technology. That's why they're roboids. And there's no doubt about it from my research that these things are not living in the sense that we live, you know, in a biological sense at all. These things really are, when you evaluate them, and all uh, the um, evidence coming from China and from the Soviet Union that has an awful lot of this coming through, uh, and, and they're much freer with giving us uh, important, um, uh, you know, evidence, if you like, about the alien um, uh, phenomenon in this world. That's what fascinated me. The American, um, the U.S. and the British are, are the ones that hide this the most, I think, sadly, when in fact we should be the most open of all uh, and lead mankind's vision, I think, you know, into, into a, a better sense of thinking and so forth. But as I say, if you put the things together, you know, uh, and you get a connection, a, a magical connection appears that is not contrived, that is natural, and the, the things put together then uh, elucidate a, a wonderful sense for the future of humanity, not something that's filled with gore and, 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 and terror and all the rest of it. And 2012, if it's anything bad, would be the transmogrifying of humanity, of the living being into a synthetic type of being that these people who say, you know, you can put your soul into a computer chip and then you can live forever in some kind of proxy eternity. I can't think of a more horrendous idea than that. And incidentally, it's logically not possible. <laughs> I hope not. I hope that doesn't happen as far as that goes. Uh, we hear so many different things. Of, In fact, uh, the producer of the show, he always brings up this, this topic of zombies you know, and uh, there has been some talk about uh, zombies in a, um, in a little more s frightening sense, and I don't know where that's it's all heading down, what path, but I hope that isn't a case, because obviously would tie into that. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, we have so much to cover, and I think we covered quite a bit, yeah. though I have to say, gentlemen, I have had one wonderful adventure here. And uh, please, would you be our guest to come back again uh, soon enough? We feel pri privileged. Sure. We will do that, yes. Thank you. And thank you so very much. All right, that was Nigel and Andrew from London. We'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio. She got the antidote. She knows the other way. She really understands. I don't know what the hell to say. I'm on the other side. I'm on the other side. I'm an exile to the left of a landslide I got my broken wing, I got the moonshine I let my enemies slide for the meantime 
TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Cop Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit ufo Info.com. You're listening to Thresholds in Other Realms. I'm Anthony Kay. With me is Sam Maranto and John Stevenson. Right now we have Craig Ranke uh, from Citizen Investigation Team. Now, Craig, can you tell our audience exactly what that is? Sure, yeah. Citizen Investigation Team was formed in 2006 by just myself and uh, my partner, Aldo Marquis. And really, it wasn't. we had no intentions of forming an organization or anything like that. We're just regular guys who were researching the 9-11 attack online, like so many others, and just questioning the event. But then we determined that the only way we were ever going to get any answers, uh, we were looking specifically at the Pentagon attack, because there's so much mystery and so many theories out there uh, surrounding the Pentagon attack and and 9-11, because there there just wasn't any live footage like you had in New York. So uh, there's a lot of questions, and we decided that the only way we were going to be able to find answers isn't by theorizing online, but actually going to Arlington and talking to the people who were there and, and saw the attack happen. Right. Uh, so that was really it. And, and, and pretty much after we did that and we uncovered evidence that, in essence, fatally uh, exposes the official story as, as a farce, um, once we did that, which was in, really on, on our first trip, uh, we knew we had to start a, an organization and, and, and put this information out to the public and do what we can to raise awareness to what we had uncovered. Yeah, you, you did a true investigation. You went out and you know talked to people and all kinds of stuff. You didn't just do well like a lot of people do. They sit at home and just throw theories out there. Well, yeah, I'm precisely, and that's what got us so uh, frustrated, I guess, just because we're looking into it, and then all these theories would come out, and then the theory would be demonstrated wrong by another particular piece of evidence, and. Uh, there's just there's just no way to get, to get to the truth, but we figured heck you know there's got to be I mean the Pentagon's in Arlington Virginia which is a highly populated area and there right. are many witnesses listed by the mainstream media, but we weren't about to trust what the media reported about these witnesses, so our goal was to talk to as many of them as possible as many witnesses as we could find. Um, number one, we wanted to try to verify what the media reported by getting a hold of the Correct. witnesses that they talked to. But even more importantly, we wanted to find new witnesses on the street, people in the neighborhoods uh, whom the, the media or the, the government had, had never spoken with. So that was really the goal, uh, to establish exactly what they saw, look at it on an investigative level, scrutinize it, and really just compare it with the official reports, the physical damage, uh, and, and everything that we've been told. Well, the way you did it was so good, too. Like you're talking to those people in those buildings, and you're like, where was the plane, on your left or your right? You know, plain and simple. Which side was it on? And everybody concurred it was on the same side. Now, that, that's an impelling evidence. Right. Well, that was ultimately what, what proves the official story false and um, demonstrates that there's no possible way the plane hit the building. A lot of people had been theorizing about missiles and small planes and drones and all kinds of things, but we, all the witnesses we spoke with saw a large commercial airliner headed fast towards the Pentagon. So 
that was that was um we knew then that there was just that, that this was the case there was a large plane there so yeah. the only question became what happened to this plane did it actually hit the building or or not and you Since saw the that, anomalous that gentleman damage was, was what, so anomalous that gentleman was in the back of the pentagon right that actually saw the plane fly low and take back off wasn't that what you had said right yeah that well first off the people we'd spoken with were all convinced that this plane they saw heading fast towards the pentagon actually hit the building just mm-hmm. like it was just like reported so they all believe the official story right um what they didn't know is what the official reports were and where all the physical damage was most importantly these five down light poles on the highway yeah that was um, very intriguing the way you uh, showed all that <laughs> well yeah exactly the physical damage obviously uh, dictates where the plane has to have been <laughs> so, I mean, that's just common sense. We, we know that in order for the plane to have hit these light poles and entered the building and caused the, the damage uh, that we see photographed and videoed, taped, right. and, and, and reported on, that the plane had to be in a specific location and on a spe- very specific trajectory. Yeah, flying and, lower than a plane can actually fly of that size, too. <laughs> well, absolutely. And, and so there's a lot of things that had to add up. And the number one obvious thing is that the plane had to approach on the south side of the gas station, the Sitco gas station, uh, which is the last landmark right in front of the Pentagon there on the side of the building that was uh, destroyed. Right. So it became clear that, all right, the plane has to be over here. It should be simple to find witnesses in this area who confirm that that's where the plane was. Well, the exact opposite happened. All of the witnesses in the best possible locations to judge the location right. of the plane in relation to the gas station unanimously reported that the plane was on the north side of the Including gas station. Including two police officers, too. <laughs> Yeah, including police officers and uh, normal uh, Arlington Cemetery maintenance workers and gas station attendants and people from all walks of life. They illustrate the flight path and they report the exact same thing, that this plane was on the north side of the gas station. Now, as researchers, we instantly knew that how important this was, and we instantly knew the implications of this, which were simply that the plane did not cause the physical damage and had to have flown on uh, after the explosion. And so, yeah, as you said, ultimately we, we did get a hold of someone who was on the other side of the Pentagon who saw it flying away after the explosion, confirming um, beyond a reasonable doubt that this is what happened and that we've been subjected to uh, an incredible psychological operation, a worldwide psychological operation uh, to justify permanent global war. Now here, for instance, you see this large plane coming in. Uh, how many of them identified it as specifically a 757. Well, not not many because you know that's not something people can tell in, in an I instant when they see a plane. Either. Most people aren't as versed on the specifics of 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 planes and what types they are that they'd be able to tell that. So that's just not a typical thing you're going to hear a witness say that. Oh, I'm no for sure it was right. a 757. They just knew it was a large plane. Now, a very large twin engine passenger jet. Now, some of them do know planes and, and did report that it was a 757. Um, but even that, we don't know for sure. Well, was that uh, one gentleman gave you it. the wingspan too? That one guy you talked to, I believe, gave you a wingspan too, didn't he? He was uh, he he knew something about aviation or something. He was telling you how big the wingspan was. Right, Sergeant Legassi is a Pentagon police officer who knew about aviation, and he, with all kinds of certainty, you know, describes the the plane as an American Airlines jet and a 757. But he also claims he only saw the plane for uh, you know about a two seconds, and then he jumped into his car out of fear. Yeah. So 
clearly witnesses can be mistaken and right. we've never we've never denied that they're not no you, you can't expect a witness to be perfectly accurate about all details uh, no, so that's why happened. we relied so heavily on corroboration independent independent corroboration is what demonstrates the accurate points about uh, specific eyewitness um, evidence and so specific eyewitness claims and the most important claim being the location of the plane in relation to the gas station and the notion that this plane was on the north side. Now, there's just no way that these witnesses would all be incorrect about this specific detail. And there's certainly no way that uh, some of them wouldn't have even been able to see the plane on the south side of the station at all. uh, Craig, did anybody by chance tell you it was on the other side? You know, did you get other opinions? Or was everyone definite was on the left side? Absolutely everyone that we spoke with who was in a position to see the gas station reports it on the north side. Okay, it's important to know the truth because, you know, filmmakers tend to leave out things that don't apply to them. Well, some do, yeah. Well, here, let's say, for instance, now, uh, you spoke to approximately how many people or how many exactly? Oh, goodness. At this point, I mean, we've, we've spoken with dozens and dozens of witnesses, many dozens of witnesses, and we're continuing to speak with more. Um, we're a good five years uh, into the investigation now, and it's ongoing, so we're not going to stop. Well, before going to the uh, light poles and the, the gentleman in the, the taxi, I'd like to address That's one thing. That's very intriguing, too. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'd like to address one thing. We know for a fact that the Pentagon is one of the most secured uh, facilities on the face of this earth, this earth okay? Yeah, you got a plane flies right up to it. <laughs> yes, whatever happened to the Patriot missiles, batteries, and other devices sitting out there that are supposed to repel or um, uh, do something to protect the facility? A, that's the first question. Second question is, with the volume of, of uh, uh, surveillance footage that has been confiscated, uh, have you been able to see and review anything other than what may be uh, seen on the internet, which is basically, from what I could see, just two or three sets of footage? Um, well, yeah. To speak with your first question, I, I, I personally don't feel that that's an accurate characterization. I wouldn't call the Pentagon the, the most heavily guarded or protected building in, in the world. Um, it's just an o- a normal office building. <laughs> really, anybody can walk up to it, okay. uh, right up to it at any point. Not only that, it's not in protected airspace. Protected airspace is across the river in Washington, D.C., above the White House. Now, a lot of people don't realize the Pentagon isn't in Washington, D.C. It's in Arlington, Virginia. Um, so it's not, pr- not only is it not protected airspace, but the Pentagon is right next door to Reagan National Airport, literally. Oh, okay. So... <laughs> Anybody who goes there, if you go to the memorial right now, anyone can walk right up to the Pentagon Memorial, and you'll, you'll see planes flying right next to the building, only you know, dozens of feet altitude, landing and taking off from Reagan National Airport. But, you know, every, every five minutes, you see these planes constantly. But so, it is Class B airspace. Um, I'm sorry? It is Class B airspace. In other well, words, it is restricted airspace. It is. Well, P-56 is mm-hmm. the area above the White House. Again, that's in D.C., and that's a very designated area that's restricted airspace. You're, no commercial aircrafts are allowed to fly there at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not the case with the Pentagon. Again, that's in Arlington, and it's right next to Reagan National Airport. Anyone who flies into Reagan National Airport, you, you can see the Pentagon directly beneath you uh, as, as you 
as you land. So yeah, but you're, I, I, you're, in other words, you it is respected airspace. It is. In other words, it's Class B. It, in other words, to go through there, you'd have to have a transponder. You can't just not just anybody willy nilly flying within that area. You can't. Well, you know, I mean, you're not our, to. our space is protected at all. You have to be a known aircraft. You know, obviously, yeah. you can't. Be that's a, what I'm saying. Not known aircraft yeah, to be in any of American yeah. airspace. And as far but, as it's, it's not the most. It may not be the most protected airspace, but it is one of the most protected airspace as far as monitored in the world. It is. Okay, well, main point being that there, it is next to an airport, and right. you have so you planes have are, uh, flying away, yeah. are a common sight. Flying away and landing right next to the Pentagon are, are extremely, not only, a, they're a, a permanent part of the landscape there. So right, sure. a plane flying away isn't an unusual thing. That'd be like uh, O'Hare Airport out by us and living by O'Hare. I mean, seeing a plane over your roof is not unusual. No. Right, you're asking about the videos. Yes. Um, I think one of the... I mean, the answer is no. We've not been privy to any information that's you know that the rest of the public is isn't uh, privy to. We we've only seen the um, the Pentagon security gate cam uh, that again seems to show an object going into the building. But there are many questions about this um, this footage on many levels. You can't really tell what's what it is first of all. Uh, but also, it shows like this strange smoke plume that was not reported by a single witness. Right. And this smoke plume doesn't even ca cast a shadow whereas everything else in the video does. Neither does the object you see. So, frankly, we, we're convinced, in fact, we know that the eyewitness evidence proves that this security video has been manipulated. Well, yes. what it is, uh, I'm actually, yes. I do surveillance videos, professional videos, and I can tell you right now, there's video cameras everywhere. I mean, something had to get it. I mean, the FBI got everything, it, they say, but that, that doesn't even make sense because there is cameras everywhere nowadays. Right, that's correct, especially, and that is true about the Pentagon. There's cameras all around it, and um, in the buildings surrounding the Pentagon as well, there, there's cameras all over the place. Right, so, and they yeah, it's, like, it's likely that the attack was caught more and that they're withholding that evidence, although while the FBI and CIA claims that they, they've stated openly that they have 85 videotapes um, that they've confiscated, they've released about 25, 30 of them, and they claim that none of them show an alleged impact. Of a plane. I don't believe that one, do you? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the ones that they list may not, uh, but the, the, the point well, is yeah, that there's going to be additional cameras <laughs> yeah. that they're the not going to The ones they list, about. yeah, the ones yeah, they I think list. about that, the one they list is 10 <laughs> miles away at the 7-Eleven. <laughs> exactly, Good right, and, and they simply won't tell you about all the security cameras that they're, they're just um, not telling us about. So, you know, we know they have video, but here's the thing. We don't call for the release of this video, and the reason is, is simple logic. We've already uncovered evidence proving that they lied. Right. In other words, the people in control of this video um, have conducted this black operation. So it makes no sense to demand that they release the video, especially when we know that the video they already have, well, have get, released You'll get a video back with Dumbo the flying elephant in it, probably. <laughs> well, exactly. They can <laughs> release a manipulated video. And um, I, I have, I'm, uh, actually would not be surprised if they do that uh, in the coming future release an additional manipulated video to um, support their story, especially as more evidence comes to light exposing that they lied. Well, that, like I say, that thing you have where it's simple on the left side or the right side, I mean, to me, that is like, that's a smoking gun. There, there's no ifs, ands, or buts in my mind. You know, very simple. Did it fly over here or did it fly over there? Exactly. It, it, you can't really get any more simple than that. And, and that's a, a lot of people tell us, well, you can't rely on eyewitness evidence. 
It's like, well, yeah, you can. People are go- are sent to jail and even to death right. every day based on eyewitness, primarily on eyewitness evidence. Exactly, murder and then, anything. When it gets, plus, when it gets to the point where you're talking about an extremely simple claim like this, like you said, a left or right claim, and when it gets so heavily independently corroborated, it eventually becomes proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And we're convinced that we've um, uncovered enough evidence that that's, in fact, exactly what, what we have here. Yeah, I definitely think so, too. And, like, we were getting to, um, uh, you want to explain some of the light poles? I mean, I believe the taxi driver's name was Lloyd or whatever. I found that pretty intriguing. Yeah, well, that is the climax of our presentation, our video presentation, National Security Alert, which everyone can view for free at our website, citizeninvestigationteam.com. Uh, Lloyd England is a taxi cab driver. He's pretty well known because there's quite a, uh, there's a, a lot of pictures <laughs> of him on the highway with his cab uh, immediately after the attack. And he was heavily used in the subsequent propaganda after the event, um, touted by the media. Uh, footage or video and as well as um, photos of his cab were used in the Musawi trial. Um, so he's well known. He's been in, uh, interviewed by several mainstream media outlets. Um, so we knew that this was a very important person to speak with because the beginning of the physical damage are these five down light poles that establish without, with absolute certainty where the location of the plane has to be uh, in order to have caused this damage. Right. And Lloyd claims that he was traveling south on Route 27, the highway in front of the building, and that he saw a plane out of the corner of his eye headed towards the Pentagon low, and that all of a sudden a, a light pole crashed through his windshield, <laughs> and that he fishtailed, ended up sideways on the road, with the light pole still sticking out Without over the t- hood of his car. And it never touched his hood. <laughs> right. And so, you know, we, we got the specs. We've examined these light poles, the same style light poles from the Virginia Department of Transportation right up the street there. And we got all the specs. They're 240 pounds, uh, 40 feet long. And you can see the picture in the pictures, the, this pole on the ground next to the cab. The problem is there are no witnesses to the pole inside the cab. There are no witnesses to Lloyd pulling the pole outside, out of the cab with the help of this alleged silent stranger, which is what his story is. Well, two people couldn't have pulled that out anyway, I don't think. Well, it, I don't think that the pole itself would have been able to suspend itself over the hood, as he described. He describes the heavy end of this right. 40-foot pole suspending itself over the hood without ever having touched the hood. If you imagine the uh, amazing amount of force kinetic energy that would be uh, on this pole it after being hit by a 90-ton Boeing. It's just really, the entire story is implausible. Well, wasn't on the pole face. straight yet, too? I mean, it was just, like, knocked down. It was straight, though, wasn't it? I mean, like, the, 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 the poles are straight, yeah. They have, like, an arm at the end, but the pole next to, in the pictures that you see next to his cab right. has a bend in it, uh, as if, you know, to say that this damage was created by the, the plane as it hit the pole which also doesn't seem to make much sense. Well, no, if a pole was hit with that kind of velocity from a plane, those suckers would be snapped where the wings hit them, you know, bent at right angles easily, if not cut in half. Right. Well, yeah, the top of pole one does look like it was pinched, it was cut off, uh, and they, and some of the other poles look like they, they fabricated the damage to look like it was actually cut right. by the wing. So we do see that they fabricated this damage deliberately to make it look like a plane cut it as, as they knocked them down. Um, but the problem is, again, nobody witnessed this, and all the people who did witness the, the plane, who could see the gas station, reported far from the light poles. 
So we know that Lloyd's story is false. And um, that's the primary proof, regardless of how implausible his story is, which is extremely implausible. These other witnesses to the plane on the north side are what really prove his story false. Well, didn't someone Um, see his car somewhere else or... What was that? Wasn't his car reported somewhere else at the time or something? He's, he reported it somewhere else. Uh, I was thinking it was in a picture at a different angle or a different something, wasn't it? Lloyd himself made that, statements. That's correct. Yeah, all the pictures show the car in the same place, which is in the south side of the bridge, right. which is where it would have to have been if the official story were true and where all the physical damage lines up with the Pentagon, the generator trailer, and everything. But uh, now what we did is we interviewed Lloyd early uh, back in 2006, but then, after we got the testimony from all the Northside witnesses, we determined that, okay, this proves Lloyd is not telling the truth. We need to confront him with this evidence. So in 2008, we did just that and actually went to Lloyd again to say, look, we've talked to these other witnesses, and your story simply does not jive with their story, and, right. and we want to show you this information. So his way of dealing with this was to suggest that his car was not on the south side of the bridge at all, <laughs> and that it was actually on the north side right. <laughs> uh, where all the other witnesses, where he um, clearly knew that all the other witnesses were placing the plane. So he tried to change his story there, but it, it, we had the photographic proof showing right. exactly where that pole was located. And when he, we showed him this, he, he basically just, you know, he, even though he's a, an African-American gentleman, <laughs> I've never seen an African-American gentleman's face turn white. <laughs> but that's what happened when we showed you him know, this information. Tell you what, I, got, I feel real sorry for that poor guy. He was put in a bad, bad situation. <laughs> well, yeah, it's hard to know his exact level of involvement in right. this operation. You know, it's clear that Lloyd is not responsible for 9-11. Yeah, so, he was the uh, mastermind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No one's trying to claim that here. But what's clear is that he is involved on a low level. And, you know, they staged that damage. Right. That has to be the case. So the only one who can know how his, his, the damage to his cab really happened and how that scene was staged uh, would be Lloyd England. So right. there's no question he's lying about what his experience in 9-11 uh, in, in essence to um, support the official story. Uh, although at canon moments we did get him to kind of slip yeah, that, yeah, yeah that. <laughs> this is a, a, a big a big event for the people with all the money um, and he made some rather rather candid statements yeah, that point I've to seen the fact your that video well aware that I've actually watched your video about four times Craig if you can't tell <laughs> I got the whole thing <laughs> memorized <laughs> <laughs> good yeah it's Oh, it's it, amazing. It, it's very compelling and uh, disturbing information, to be sure. Well, that part where, you know, it went over Lloyd, supposedly there. I mean, a plane physically can't fly that low. And wasn't it eyewitnesses said it did maneuvers that a plane can't do or something? Or, oh, no, the Pentagon the said that, right? traffic controllers did that. They said that. <laughs> well, the plane did fly low. We know that because that's what the eyewitnesses right. who saw the plane on the north side report. No, I mean, the, their version of it, a plane couldn't fly as low as they were saying to clip the light poles and not, you know, destroy the yard out front. The quote from the air traffic controller was stating that it did a military maneuver, which is not what these planes were designed to do or should right. be well, doing. That's true. The speed, the official speeds reported are much too fast at that level. And and that's a scientific fact. But yes. the plane wasn't going that fast. The no, actual the plane. Now, first off, we think that there's no reason to suspect that since this plane did not hit the building, um, there's no reason to suspect that this plane was actually Flight 77. Right. Um, so we don't know the exact type of plane. We know that it was, you know, made to look like a commercial airliner, and and um, so you know. But the question is, 
you know, did the plane do maneuvers that are impossible? Uh, you know, I don't think so. I think they just reported maneuvers that were difficult, and they reported speeds that would technically be impossible, right. when in fact the plane was going much slower than that, and we have expert witness testimony uh, to this fact. Now, I'm not familiar with that area at all, Craig. I've never been out there, but I'm, aren't there people who would have seen this? I mean, I, I can't comprehend why there aren't a lot of people that actually saw what happened. Well, the Pentagon is the largest low-rise structure on Earth. So when you're on one side of the Pentagon, I know it's five-sided, that's why it's the Pentagon. Right. So when you're on one side of the Pentagon, you can't see anything that's going on on the other side of the Pentagon. Okay, but I um, mean like, you know, adjacent businesses or any, I mean, people out there. Is this a right. wide-open area? I'm not, like I say, I'm not familiar with it out there. Well, sure. There, there are plenty of businesses in Crystal City right next to there. There's uh, high-rises. Um, there's high-rises in Roslyn, and that's where the USA Today was and, and such. So it certainly is likely uh, that people saw this entire event go down. However, probably not as many as you would think, because right. unlike in New York, this was a complete surprise. So in other words, while people were sitting there watching the, the North Tower burn in New York, and then right. the second plane flew in, uh, you know, they had hundreds of thousands of people who were already looking up uh, watching what happened. Correct. This wasn't, the, this wasn't the case in the Pentagon. Most people aren't sitting there staring out the window uh, watching planes, especially since they're so common. Yeah, that's because true. the Because the, air, the airport is right next to uh, the, 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 the Pentagon. So, again, this is something that people see constantly. So even a plane flying away, let's mm -hmm. say someone heard a big explosion, ran to the window to see what was going on. Uh, if they see a plane flying away, they're not going to automatically associate that plane with the attack. Because, right. again, this is right in the line of air traffic. Yeah, I actually didn't National. know there was the airport so, right there, but, I mean, that's quite understandable. The other right, thing so, is they would be so startled, they may not even pay attention or recall anything other than that event if they've seen it. In other right. words, the explosion. However, we don't deny yeah. that some people did likely see the entire event go down. Now, mm -hmm. first off, we did find Roosevelt Roberts Jr. on the other side of the building who saw the plane flying away. So that's proof that people did see it. Right. Now, the question is, are there more people who saw it? And the answer is, we think so. Um, number one, we've talked to some who were, who were afraid to talk about what they saw. Yeah, so that why. indicates <laughs> they saw something that does not jive with the official story. Um, number two, we think that uh, a lot of these people were handled specifically with what we call the second plane cover story. Because in the days immediately following the event, uh, in the weeks afterwards, the media reported about a mysterious second plane that was allegedly shadowing the attack jet and flew away during the explosion and veered away. Yeah, I heard that one. So once you have stories about this, this is going to become a plausible explanation to anybody who saw the actual attack jet flying away after the explosion. But the reality is, there was no second plane. There was a second plane, but it didn't arrive in the airspace, a C-130. It didn't arrive in the airspace until almost three minutes after the attack. Hmm. And it was at a much higher altitude. So what they did is they blended the reports of this plane. A lot of the people in, their, in, their, in all the chaos and in all the, uh, they were basically, you know, didn't know what was going on. They, they would think, they would instantly, they were afraid about this plane when they saw it. So naturally, they would kind of blend, bring it closer to the event than it really was. And so this helped facilitate that second plane cover story, when the reality is we have video evidence of this plane arriving, taken by Anthony Tribby from the highway. Uh -huh. So we know for a fact, and he's, he claims he didn't turn on his, his uh, camera until about a minute after the attack, and then the C-130 doesn't show up for another almost two minutes after that. So this is proof that the C-130 wasn't there for about three minutes after the attack, and it certainly wasn't veering away at less than 100 feet altitude 
uh, immediately after the explosion. Right. Well, we know what it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't what they said. Do you have any theories on what it is or was, or do you even want to touch that? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we, we feel that there's only one possible conclusion for what caused the damage, given this evidence. Um, because we didn't see, nobody we talked to saw uh, a missile or reported something else on the south side uh, that hit the building. So everyone we talked to saw one plane, and we know that plane was on the north side and therefore flew away. So we feel the only logical explanation for what caused the damage to the Pentagon is that uh, really it was the exact same MO as we know the evidence shows happened in New York. We feel it was pre-planted explosives um, that basically were already in the building. Well, aren't the, the two beams flew. in the front of the Pentagon, if I remember right, blowing outwards instead of sheared off or pushed inwards? That's right. If you look closely at the damage that there was, which you know many people have said is anomalous and doesn't add up to a plane hitting the building, uh, this is very true in many levels. And one of them is the fact that these bottom columns on the first floor appear to be blown up and out right. as opposed to uh, being pushed in, as you would expect if a plane had hit the building. Um, but also, that area of the Pentagon had been under renovation for years prior to the attack. Mm -hmm. And that renovation was conveniently scheduled to be completed that very week of the attack. <laughs> Convenient. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, obviously this gave the, the perpetrators and the planners plenty of opportunity to do what they needed to do to plant explosives or plant plane parts and do what they needed inside the Pentagon, uh, which, of course, you know, no one would have access to under the cover of this renovation. Um, so, well, anyway, and, and that's also, see, that uh, also explains why we had so few deaths compared to well, if say, a found, real plane hit the building in any other uh, portion of the building. Uh, we know thousands would have died in the Pentagon, but there were only 125 deaths inside the Pentagon that day. Huh. Well, here, of the debris that was found there, and then I do want to go back to the uh, uh, light posts, of the debris that has been found there, and, and there seems to be more and more pictures showing up, if they're legitimate or not, I don't know, but showing various uh, parts of what could easily be a 757. Right. Now, the other thing is uh, a set of, I've seen some footage taken from a helicopter of an object hitting the, uh, well, and what they presume to be the actual object hitting it. Have you seen that? Oh, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. That's a uh, blatantly fake video. Seems uh, to the, be. <laughs> the helicopter footage is, is already out there, and there's no object. What they did, whoever put that video on YouTube, just inserted what looks to be a missile, uh, a bright missile flying into the building. There's yeah. Uh, that's, so. Oh, it's blatant as all heck. Well, that's how false. we do things, you know, the way NASA colors out, you know, things on the moon. <laughs> yeah, it's, it stands out. Well, I don't, I don't think this was put out there by the government. I think this is just somebody, uh, yeah. you know, who wants well, to know, know the online. They do uh, things well, like that do, you wouldn't expect. <laughs> yeah, no, they'll put it out there so it can be debunked at some time, so it diffuses the. It, it, that's part of uh, detraction and debunking. That sure. And, and it's, it's it's part of the D and D operations. But Absolutely, as far as yeah. as far as the um, uh, light post, uh, was it the president that was supposed to have been there the day before, and they had to take down the posts, uh, lamp posts for the helicopter? Uh, well, no, not exactly. What we, what we suggest as, in, in the epilogue of our presentation is that the light posts were planted and advanced and, and that, you know, that they weren't downed in real time by anything, that they simply removed the light posts perhaps days or weeks in advance, you know, and under the cover of normal um, maintenance, and, and that they prefabricated the damage and then perhaps placed them the night before the attack 
so they'd be ready in, in for when it happened. Because first off, anybody who sees a, a, a light pole on the side of the ground, um, particularly before the attack, there's no reason for alarm. This is just this normal debris on the side of the road. Most people are concentrated on driving and going to work, and right. there'd be no reason to even remember if you had seen such a thing. Um, and but yeah, President Bush was scheduled to. Well, he departed from the heliport, which is right next to where the um, alleged impact was. He departed from the heliport on 9-10-2001, and he was scheduled to arrive at the heliport on 9-11-2001 at 12 noon. Now, we know this from multiple reports from firefighters as well as Sean Boger, who is the heliport tower air traffic controller, who we've done an inter- interview with, and he, he made this quite clear. So what this means is that under the guise of normal security operations, um, securing the area for the president's arrival, uh, they had the opportunity to do what they needed to do to prepare for the event. Um, you know, whether it be place the light bulbs or, or place some debris or, or, or whatever. Um, so it's, it's not only that, but um, Sean Boger describes it as a, quote, dog and pony show. Mm-hmm. Every time that the, pen, the, the, pen, uh, the president um, would arrive at the, pen, or at the heliport. So not only was that part of the dog and pony show, but we also know that they were wrapping up the renovation. So that area, which was a semi-permanent uh, construction area for the renovation, uh, there's all kinds of activity going on because they were moving out trailers, construction trailers, uh, and the, these types of things uh, in order to wrap up this renovation. So again, under, under all this chaos and uh, this dog and pony show going on in the pr- uh, days prior to the event, uh, they could have done anything they needed to do in preparation for the event. Uh, do you know when they broke the ground for uh, the Pentagon? What day? <laughs> Yeah, wasn't that uh, uh, 9/11? 9/11 um, oh, was it 50 really? years ago, right? Oh, I didn't know that one. <laughs> yeah, it was the anniversary. Oh, you didn't know that? Yeah, it was exact. It was on 9/11. It was uh, the 60 year, anif- 60 year anniversary. Maybe that was yeah. just them celebrating, and their fireworks went off. <laughs> well, right. Kind of interesting, isn't it? it? It's all intriguing. Like I said, I've seen numerous videos until I saw yours, and like I say, yours is just amazing. That's why I wanted to get you on, and I want other people to see this because yours is just like I say this smoking gun. Oh, yeah. Now, well, I appreciate that. And, and, yeah, we've deliberately stayed away from theorizing as much as possible. Right. Well, um, sure. Obviously, we have our yeah. theories about the light poles and about planted explosives in the building. Right. But for the most part, we stick to uncovering what the witnesses saw and what they reported and, and reporting what they told us. Well, so that right there is important. this is our theory that the plane sure. was on the north side. We just went there to find out what people had to say, right. and this is what they told us. Yes. Well, that was, like I say, I liked the way you went about it because it was just asking them simple questions you weren't placing words in their mouths or nothing you're just asking them to describe what they saw now the debris have you analyzed i i I, you know up to the light posts and uh, lloyd's uh, testimony and 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 his uh uh you know his accounts that right there is enough to to reopen the case on a standard yes on a standard scenario i mean you would say, well, wait a minute here. Now let's reanalyze this. Something else is going on. Now, well, as- I would take it. I would take it a step further. I would say that the, particularly the witnesses who saw the plane on the north side are enough to make the entire house of cards come tumbling down. In, In other words, case, we already have yeah. proof that it was a black operation. Hard proof is the way I see it. So well, you have me, hard evidence to right. to support a theory is what you have, and and now what you need is the physical. And you need some physical evidence beyond that 
that would really push it over the edge. And 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 I think you you may be heading in that direction. I hope. Well, frankly, I mean, they, the the who who's implicated by this north side approach has control of the crime scene, so there yes. can be no independent evaluation or forensic examination right. of the damage in that respect, other than you know looking at the photos. So there's nothing more we can do in this sense. And again, what we feel is enough that proves the official story false. Now, does it answer all the questions? No. No. I, I think it's impossible to answer all the all the questions. And nor do I think it's necessary. Once we know the official story is false. That should be enough for the American people to take action and demand justice and put an end to the war on terror yeah, you would and, think all the, so. <laughs> and all the, uh, the things that they're doing under the guise of fighting terrorism. So that's the way I see it. I think any new investigation shouldn't have anything to do with uh, establishing whether or not 9-11 was an inside job or exactly right. all the details of what happened. I think the investigation should be strictly uh, uh, to investigate exactly who to indict for this crime. Yeah. Well, in any anything... When you're looking at something like this, yeah, it, first of all, it's never it hasn't been looked at. Uh, there's no president uh, on it. I mean, there's well, <laughs> it should be looked at as as a crime scene. And here you have evidence being removed right away. Uh, right. You have everything counterintuitive to a a um, an, an a, a, a a air crash a um, anything pertaining to air safety it's it's counterintuitive it, it's not procedural it's it's way off base and that well, in itself is questionable so well absolutely and, and and that's why this is such a big issue because when the crime has been committed by the authorities by yeah. the people in control of our justice system by the people in control of our military uh, uh, um, and these types of things then it puts us at a big disadvantage as citizens because obviously, who are we going to go to to investigate it? We can't ask the government to investigate it. That's no. for sure. Well, have you got no. any heat from this, Craig? You know, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, you know, mostly what we get is ignored by the mainstream and by the authorities. They right. don't want any attention to the, to the information we've uncovered, so they do their best, best to completely ignore it on all levels. The most heat I've gotten are from people trying to debunk the alleged conspiracy theorists or right. else even infiltrators within the movement itself who are um, adamant about attacking our character and, mm -hmm. and somehow making it look like we're the bad guys here. Well, yeah, I so, know you yeah. and Lloyd did it. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so we do get heat on that level from yeah. people within the movement who we're convinced just by their actions against us are, are infiltrators and liars. But you don't have, like, MIBs after you or anything? No, nothing like that. They won't touch it. Your, your car hasn't blown up or anything. <laughs> don't give them ideas. No, no <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't seen anything like that. And, and you know, okay. I, I, I don't doubt that they uh, monitor uh, what we're doing on some levels um, and that they, they want to know what we're up to. But, again, I, I think their biggest, um, what they've done is successfully pull off this operation. So as long as they keep the information like this and they make it look like it's crazy conspiracy theory right. uh, and, and, and they don't focus any attention on it, they're in a much better position. Well, has anybody of, you know, anything important, any network, or has anybody ever aired your video or talked about it, you know, that besides the smaller guys? I think Alex Jones had you on, didn't he? No, Alex Jones won't even have us on. Alex Jones, from day one, has always said that uh, he, well, I don't know about from day one, eventually he said that he thinks the Pentagon is a honey trap, and, <laughs> and that a plane must have hit the building, and that they're eventually going to pull out videos proving it and that this is going to discredit the 9-11 the Truth Movement. So he was saying this before we even launched our investigation. Mm. Now, you'd think that after we uncover this information that he would take a hard look at it and perhaps, you know, revise his opinion and have us on his show. 
But unfortunately, because he was so adamant about that opinion, uh, I think he's kind of painted himself in a new corner, well, and he's refusing of, to look at anything anymore. And some of these so bigger people might be controlled, too. Well, the thing and, is, there's and, so and much answers, flying. No, no mainstream media has had us on at all. No. There was a hit piece done on us about uh, by the OC Weekly, which is a, a, a weekly uh, magazine, and they put us on the cover and basically did a hit piece on us attacking our characters um, with, with lies. Well, did so E-Skeptic do something and Skeptical, you know... Uh, Michael Shermer's group, did they get to put anything on you or anything on you? Oh, no, they won't touch it. They <laughs> won't even get near it. They they stick to, you know, trying to debunk missiles and, and things like this that are already debunked. Right. They don't want to look at the hard evidence that they can't debunk. So those types of guys really just stay away from We're our We're doing a positive, positive interview for you. We're just letting you say the truth, and we're not well, going to sure. be well, mean well, in any way, shape, he's or presenting, form. He's presenting the facts that he found. Well, that's, that's why it. I wanted him. I, yeah. be, I, be, I believe in what he says. He did He did it honest, and he's not giving you any bull. <laughs> no, no, no. He's laying it out, and that's fine. And and he's not taking it any further than that, the, than saying that, obviously, he, his personal opinion is that there was uh, there was as as far as any conspiracies? Of course, there was a conspiracy, and it was most likely uh, uh, orchestrated by by very powerful people, if not the powers that are. So, um, well, there, there's really no avoiding that conclusion once you once you realize that the evidence proves the plane didn't hit. Um, we know that you know in order for the Pentagon to be infiltrated with bombs or. Uh, it had to be people in control of the Pentagon. Right. It had to be people in control of military resources. So once you accept that these witnesses really did see the plane on the north side, and you, once you believe what they report, uh, there's no avoiding that conclusion for logical people, unfortunately. And, and so that's really the situation. Well, I'm in. sure that you or I or no one could just walk right to the Pentagon without being on multiple cameras. Well, here, you know, <laughs> you, you, you have... Well, there's the thing. You have all these cameras. Where's the footage? They took the footage. Well, show us the footage. Yeah, that's well, weird. now it's I mean, going to be all tampered with, uh, just as the missing frames and, and the uh, fade-ins that they that they put into the uh, footage that they have shown. That's been tampered with, cut and dry. Um, you don't have to be an expert, but it does help, and you are an expert to analyze that. The thing here is... Uh, you have the cynics, so-called skeptics, constantly stating that how can you have thousands, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people complacent or compliant into doing this deed? Well, pretty damn easy. All they're doing is their job. And uh, sure. that's it. And they don't know what they're doing. They only know what their job is, their orders are. They don't know the whole scheme of thing, things, and they wouldn't do it, the vast majority. Maybe a handful will, but the vast majority would never have been involved in any which way and, and stopped it if they could. Uh, well, yeah, I, I think those types of numbers are bloated. I don't, you know, it's impossible to know exactly how many people it would take to, ter to pull off the operation. Obviously, you know, the planes could be, all, you know, controlled by remote control they could be uh drones to maybe look like commercial airliners so you know really it probably didn't wouldn't take nearly as many people as, as a lot of them say um certainly it had to take dozens or potentially hundreds and then i think there's a lot more people who are involved in the propaganda after the fact uh infiltrators and, and liars online uh as part of the movement so clearly these people are well aware of what they're doing so we know there are dozens of people that had to be involved with such an operation and there's a lot of reason that they're going to want to keep their mouths shut about it, uh, and that's number one. Their own, their own. They're covering their own, um, right. their own behinds. Yeah. Uh, 
So, you know, they know if they come out and start uh, talking about it that they're going to be put themselves at risk. So and so human nature isn't to do that. You're still doing active research right now yet then, aren't you? Absolutely. Now, have yeah. you gone through, this is something that I found so telling, um, did you go, do you know where the largest um, depository of, of actual uh, news uh, and media footage from that day is or are? Have you reviewed uh, as much interviews as possible? I'm, I'm talking about the first interviews of, of political, uh, the big the bigwigs, the president, the uh, secretary of state, the vice president, etc. Uh, have you gone through that? Have you listened to the first words that they all said? Did you by any chance hear that? Well, sure. I mean, we've done quite a bit of research and looked into, you know, what was reported by the mainstream and by the government and by the officials to find contradictions in their stories and, and these types of things. And, and sometimes you can find little contradictions here and there, but the reality is it's what the witnesses saw that proved what happened. Do you and recall... We knew that, that going to the source is, is the best way to do it, because whatever they're telling us in their <laughs> videos, uh, you know, even if it's wrong, it may just be dis disinformation that they're putting out there. Uh, but yeah, we certainly look into that, and not only that, we're looking into you know, the reporters and the media, the people behind uh, putting out the lies um, and their connections, such as, you know, Gannett, um, Gannett uh, Publishing owns USA Today, and mm -hmm. they're right up the street from the Pentagon, and they had um, <laughs> a lot of reporters who were touted as alleged witnesses to the attack, mm -hmm. uh, high-level reporters and editors, and some of these have, are, are very questionable for several reasons, and even just looking into the background of Gannett itself, uh, the CEO and president of Gannett Publishing on 9-11 was Douglas McCorkendale. Uh, well, he had just months prior to that joined the board of directors for Lockheed Martin, <laughs> the largest defense contractor in the world. So clearly, uh, this guy has a, a, an interest, a financial interest, in permanent global war. Yes. One thing I found very unusual, okay, and this is what put, that, that really put the hair on my whatever's left on my head, in the back of my head, standing up and on my back. And, and uh, this is it. The president and a few other top heads of state, or if, you know, the vice president, I believe it was the uh, secretary of state, there were three of them who said the exact same thing. And they stated that in a country as free as ours, we could expect these things. How odd right. is that for three people? To come up with the same phrase that is so contradictory to anything we hold dear to us in America. Same freedom. Same we fight for freedom. We die for freedom. And what does that mean? Well, to be safe then, one must forfeit your freedom. You, you, you instill, when it comes to um, mind control, you do these things at the pro at proper times when, when when there's trauma you instill thoughts and 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 uh suggestions be it subliminal or whatever and it was perfect it was so telling it was at that point that i knew a ruse was 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 what we were seeing and that there's something else afoot you know this is what got me very very concerned well, yeah, and clearly they, they went forward with removing some of our freedoms by uh, initiating the Patriot Act and the Military Commissions Act and, right. and these types of things. 
And, uh, of course, these are being upheld under Obama, who is an alleged left-wing president. So, you know, it doesn't matter what, what, whether you have right-wing or left-wing in power. They're, they're really upholding the same agenda. militaristic policies and, it's and, an agenda. Uh, while mm-hmm. eroding our freedoms at the same time. Yeah, yes. there is no right or left. It's it's a puppet show. It's a game. It's When you have that, that type of duality and whatever, it's just illusion. It's BS. But... Um, uh, I really enjoy the work you're you're doing. It's very good. You're bringing evidence. I would I would love to see somebody work on the images and the the, the photographs that are being brought forward. By the way, what's under the blue tarp that everybody was that this whole group? I don't know how many people were carrying away in that box. Oh no, we we already know the answer to that question. Terry Marin was one of the witnesses that we interviewed, who um, who's in National Security Alert, and he was one of the people carrying that blue tarp the blue tent, if you will, and if you take a look at it closely, you can see that there's no bottom in, in this tent, mm-hmm. and th- that's why they're so easily able to carry it over their shoulders, and so really there's nothing suspicious about this particular piece of evidence at all. When They use several of these tents in the recovery efforts, and you can see pictures of these uh, tents with the blue tarp over the top of them in other areas as well. So, you know, again, just look closely at that photo. You can see it has no bottom to it at all. You know, as far as the parts there, Craig, uh uh, do you think there's a 757 enough parts to make a plane there? I mean, I don't. I mean, normally on a plane wreck, you know, I've looked at dozens and dozens of wrecks. Tons. There's always, you know, engines are always there. And 9 out of 10 times, no matter how bad they are, the tail section always seems to survive somehow. Yeah. And, and this has got nothing. <laughs> there were well, right. And, and, and that's, that's really one of the things that made people suspicious, including us, right off the bat, was the suspicious lack of debris. So the notion that there's a few pieces here and there that can be, uh, you know, tied to a 757 or look like they came from an airplane at all, uh, it doesn't mean much because the point is there was so little debris to begin with. So easily the pieces that were there um, could be planted. Now the ones that allegedly fit a 757, what we're talking about here is a diffuser case, uh, a wheel rim, uh, and a piece of a landing gear that people have actually identified as being. Uh, matching a 757. Now, all these photographs came out after the fact, and they were taken inside the building. Mm-hmm. So, it could be, first off, some of them don't even have photograph uh, photographer credit. So, yeah. we don't even know if they're inside the Pentagon at all. They could have been staged anywhere and, and taken, or perhaps the photographs were taken long before the attack. Uh, or, of course, several uh, the the parts were already in the Pentagon. They took the, the pictures afterwards uh, because they were already there. The point is that the existence of these parts does not prove that a plane crash happened. Right. Um, it, it just shows that, you know, uh, you know again, they, they were able to plant some evidence that seemed to corroborate their story, when the reality is it's the suspicious lack of debris that got all of us questioning well, the event in the first place. What happened is that part of a plane hit the building is what it looks like. <laughs> well, you're talking about 60 tons of potential debris. Uh, with, with, you now, know. Was there one seat? Did one seat show up anywhere, anything like that? I haven't seen a picture of any seats. See, so you always now, see seats or seat bags. Now, how about or body parts? Supposedly, a lot of body parts were picked up. Is is this? Do you you sure. know? Is that the case, or tell me yes or no? Oh, absolutely. There was 125 people who were murdered inside the building. So clearly, they're they're going to find body parts. Now, the question is, did they uh, identify remains from the people who were allegedly on Flight 77 inside the Pentagon? Right. Now, the government says they did. They said that they've uncovered DNA from virtually all of the passengers. Well, that's convenient. Okay. 
<laughs> yeah, so that's rather convenient. Now, what this is, of course, is nothing but a report put out by the people who are implicated by the Northside evidence. So there's no reason to believe in the, act, in the factualness of this report. Right. And even if they did find some body parts or some DNA from passengers, there's no reason to trust the chain of custody of this evidence. There's no reason to trust that it came from the Pentagon. Or even if it did come from the Pentagon, there's no reason to, to trust that it happened um, during a plane crash. That's true. Fact, we know it didn't. We already know they're lying. Yeah. Well, I saw some pictures of bodies, but they were obviously from Pentagon workers because they were whole bodies that were burnt real bad. But if a plane hit that fast, as they say, there would just be scattered bits everywhere. You're not going to find whole bodies. Well, you know, it's hard to say. There, again, whether if a plane hit or, uh, well, we know a plane didn't hit, but the point is, you right. know, bombs going off are also going to, you know, obliterate bodies. But yeah. at the same time, some people will be burnt. Um, and the, But, yeah, I, there's no evidence that, there is plenty of evidence that there were 125 people murdered inside the building mm. by the perpetrators of this operation. Right. And these family members of the people mourn for their deaths. And if you go to the Pentagon right now, you can go to the memorial right in front of the building. They've got a, a, a bench dedicated to each of the people. Um, and this bench, the benches have a little uh, water underneath it. And they're all, folk, they're all placed in a way that lines up with the official south side trajectory of the plane <laughs> so this is very deliberate uh on their part obviously and and to, in order to subtly uh reinforce the notion that the plane entered in this particular trajectory right. when we know this is simply not the case so you need to go out there with a bunch of lawn chairs and put them all in your on your line on the other side of the building <laughs> Now, <laughs> yeah, well, they they own it. the the government owns that the whole area there. So even if hanging around too much, they they're they're going to ask you questions. Oh, they'd they love for a reason to get you. You get you get well, out there. They just love for a reason to grab you. <laughs> now, the people who died there. First of all, uh, this is a new. This was a new renovated area that was under renovations for for some time. And what function was going on at that point? And what were those people doing? You said they were cleaning. You no, know, I don't know. I I don't have any evidence. For that, for oh, sure. you don't. No, you I know don't. that it was more. Uh, it was less occupied than it would be had the renovation been completely finished and everybody been moved back into their offices. Um, but some of the speculation out there is that what we had was the Office of Naval Accounting in that area. The day before 9/11, Rumsfeld announced that supposedly uh, 2.3 trillion dollars was uh, somehow unaccounted for at the Pentagon. That's well, correct. Naturally, you'd think that would be a big story, but when 9-11 happens the day after that announcement, uh, not much happens. Uh, that kind of fell by the wayside. How convenient. So, <laughs> Rumsfeld also said that something to the effect that not a penny would be given to them until they started the accounting. So uh, what did we have, emergency $46 billion, uh, within 24 hours assigned to the Pentagon? <laughs> right, right. So, you know, a lot of people Amazing, have, have speculated that that particular area had the records to this uh, to this missing cash in the coffers, and somehow that they just did away with it all uh, as a part of the operation. No. Well, it I would fall in line with the... Uh, we don't... I, I don't know if, if we do or we don't, but then again, it would fall in line with those things that we do know about, Building 7, about the World Count in, Enron, uh, records on uh, in the security exchange floor. I forgot, was it on, in Building 7? I forgot which floor it was. But all that was gone, and that was convenient. Right. So, I mean, there was a, there was a lot of convenience uh, right. uh, in all this. 
Uh, the it, other it's thing is... It's reasonable to suspect that they took care of a lot of birds with one stone during this. Right. Absolutely. And the other thing is to say, well, this is all speculative. When you keep adding things, these things up, well, this is coincidental. Coincidence? or You know, uh, I don't know. Uh, it just seems to keep on piling up, and at some point, it, it tips. And then you just have to say, oh, my God, what the heck? Well, exactly. And when it all comes back to the notion that we, we have proof beyond a reasonable doubt that the plane was on the north side of the gas station and therefore did not hit the light poles or the Pentagon, uh, there, there's no question that there's, we've got a lot of justification to be suspicious of these uh, circumstantial, of the circumstantial evidence. Hey, well, right there is, 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 is very important. To me, that's very important and enough reason to give cause in addition to all the other things, but right there enough to give cause for a, a civilian, uh, honest uh, investigation and trial. But in reality, do you really think anything is going to happen to this, Craig? Hell no. Well, you know, I I wouldn't do what I do if I had no hope whatsoever. Right. Well, I don't mean that. So, I just mean I know how the government is in this. Hope is uh, one thing. I but. agree with you 100%, <laughs> but, you know, in reality, I'm just wondering if we'll ever be able to do everything, even though we know we're right. Well, you know, it definitely seems unlikely that um, justice will be <laughs> seen for 9-11. Um, but, again, you know, we have to continue. We just we, we can't stop. We have to try to raise awareness to what's been uncovered. And when people realize we have proof on many fronts, it's not just what we've uncovered. Oh, there's all I mean, kinds of stuff. In the World Trade Center, we know, uh, you know, there was a, an, an, we have proof of a black operation there as well. So sure. it, it, there's plenty of evidence here pointing to this fact. So it's just a matter of, trying to get people to pay attention to it and, and raising awareness to this information. And you guys are doing your part in that, so we appreciate it. Well, well thank you very much, Craig. Uh, now, if anybody wants to uh, kind of look and research this information that we're talking about here today, uh, where can they go? Sure, yeah. You can go to citizeninvestigationteam.com. It's all there. We've got a very uh, detailed FAQ section. So you not only can view National Security Alert for free on that site, but when you go to our FAQ section, we answer a lot of questions there in detail with pictures, and we explain exactly why it's physically impossible for a plane on the north side to hit the light poles and in the building. And we back it up with expert testimony from pilots. We're partnered with Pilots for 9-11 Truth. Right. And uh, there's a lot of great information put out by that organization at pilotsfor911truth.org as well. So, um, yeah, definitely visit there, and, and all the evidence is available. We encourage people to download it for free, copy it, and get it to media and authorities. We've even outlined um, a step-by-step -step strategy as to how you can help raise awareness with this information right. to take the evidence and, you know, take what we've uncovered and, and, and bring it to the people. And that's on the strategy tab of our website. All right. Well, thank you very much, Craig Ranke, everybody. We'll be right back. You're listening to Thresholds into Other Realms. The 
edgeonair.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Cop Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on the edgeonair.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO info.com you're listening to threshold radio i'm anthony k with me is sam ronto and john stevenson we're going to be at the chicago ghost conference october 1st saturday october 1st so we hope to see you guys there theedgeonair.com is going to be doing a live broadcast with us from the chicago ghost conference uh, ursula biowski she holds this event every year it's a good event it's a good way to get out of the house we hope to see you there next sunday join us 7 30 we'll be here ufo-info.com if you can't make that friday nights theedgeonair.com from 10 to 11 see you next week Thresholds Radio Production.